Hello, welcome to another episode of New Discourses Bullets. I'm James Lindsay, and on this show, I give you kind of the lowdown on a single topic, sort of bullet points format, try to keep it tight and concise. This is a little bit of an abstract topic for the bullets. Usually I'm a little bit more specific, but I think this is important to understand that the left thinks in a particular way. And that way is dialectically. So I'm not going to spend a bunch of time explaining the dialectic because I want to tell you what the dialectic can tell us about the history of leftism and the future of leftism. And we're at kind of this huge inflection point in that progression. I think it adds clarity. A quick summary is the dialectic is a kind of combination of opposites. Okay, so you have an idea you have its opposite. And rather than trying to blend them together or mix them into some average, the idea is that you're supposed to lift yourself up to a higher perspective and see how both pieces are part of a bigger whole. That's a weird thing. So what that means is that you keep the essentials of two opposing ideas, let's say capitalism and socialism. And there's some essentials Well, their societies are supposed to function, they're supposed to do this, they're supposed to do that, but they have certain problems. Capitalism can run away and and cause all these these disasters with regard to to sustainability, whereas socialism can't produce anything, and so everybody starves. turns out that if you see them as opposing systems, uh, you can see that there are benefits and flaws, I suppose, to, to both systems. What you would do in a dialectical situation is try to raise yourself up and see it from a higher perspective where they're both part of the same broader system. And I think what we're going to talk about is going to make clear what that's, that particular dialectical synthesis, as it's called, is going to be. Okay, so one point you need to know about, or I guess two points you need to know about the dialectic is number one, uh, the dialectic always moves to the left. You absolutely have to know that the dialectic always moves to the left. And the reason that the dialectic always moves to the left is because when you do the synthesis, when you take two opposing ideas and you raise it up, what you do is you start with the original idea as the status quo of society. And then what you do is you introduce a new idea that is necessarily to its left. And when you mix the two and you, or you raise up and see the higher perspective and mix the two, or you sublate them is the word that they use for this into a higher level, what you actually end up with is the new right wing, because that's the new status quo of society. So immediately, the next thing to do is to propose a new idea further to the left, and to keep moving in that direction. So the dialectic always moves to the left. As a result, it always cannibalizes its previous movements. So Marxism is criticized by cultural and critical Marxism, so it looks like Marxism and and critical Marxism are very different, or cultural Marxism are very different, but they're not. Or, uh, say, woke criticizes the critical Marxists. So it looks like woke and critical theory or critical Marxism are different, but they're not. What they are is that the essence has been kept and the particulars have been thrown away and it's lifted up to a higher level of understanding. So that's the first thing you have to understand. The second thing you have to understand is that there is actually a prescribed pattern by which the theories of the modern era uh, explain how the dialectic moves. It moves through three distinct phases. The reasons are that it really is based in old esoteric magical religions, but it moves through three phases. 
If it were the Christian Trinity, you might identify them as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I say that because Hegel, Georg Hegel, a, a German philosopher, at the, he wrote a book in 1807 called The Phenomenology of Spirit. To put a time, timeline on him, he died in 1831. He formulated this in terms of, in fact, the Christian Trinity. And so he actually put in the position of, of God as the perfect idea. And then he also said that the perfect idea gives birth to a state. The state is the divine idea as it exists on earth, is his exact quote. So you know where this leftist statism comes into play so strongly now. And then uh, the state gives rise to conditions that people live in, which gives rise to a society, which has a spirit of that society, which he called the Geist or spirit or Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit, right? And so then in Christianity, this trinity is just three entities that are perfect, co-eternal. They were there at the beginning of time. They're there at the end of time and whatever, blah, blah, blah. That's the mystery of the Trinity. In the Hegelian or the dialectical th uh, conception, they're a process. So the idea and the father position gives birth to the son, uh, which is the state. And the state gives rise to the society. And the society has its mixing and matching and everything going on. And that all the contradictions becoming apparent to people. And that causes eventually a revolution in the idea. So you get a new idea and a new paradigm that's been lifted up that sees all of the contradictions of the previous society to where the particulars fall away, the essence is kept, but that they are now understood from a higher level. And the German word for that is Aufheben. If you're a listener to my podcast, you're very familiar with my uses of that word. And like I said, it's called sublation or to sublate in Marxism. So what I want to extract from that is that the dialectic is formulated, at least in leftism, and since we'll go with the middle of the 1700s, uh, and astute listeners will notice Hegel was later. So we're going to go backwards. But it's, it's, it's formulated there where there are these three positions, which you could call the ideal realm, which is ideas, and then the material realm, which is the state and nature and people, and then kind of the societal or cultural, cultural or spiritual realm. And it doesn't matter which one you use, but we'll say societal. So you have the ideal realm gives rise to the material realm, and the material realm gives rise to the societal realm. And society changes the ideas, so you go back to the ideal realm from there. And so this is the movement of the dialectic. It doesn't just move left constantly, it spirals left. And then the longer haul, where one movement cannibalizes uh, the previous, it always does this. It always follows this pattern. It always goes from ideal and it doesn't have to start there. It's a spiral. It's a circle, it's wherever, right? But ideal to material to societal. Ideal to material to societal. Okay, so we know Hegel was an idealist. So he was an ideal. And if you know anything about Marx, you know Marx was a materialist, a dialectical materialist. That's literally the name of his philosophy, dialectical materialism. Materialism is where the world works, and it moves dialectically. That's all that means, which is what I've kind of described. So Hegel was an uh, an idealistic material. Uh, uh, sorry, a dialectical idealist. Um, he was not a materialist. And before him, you had this guy, Jean Jacques Rousseau, who inspired both Hegel and Kant, and also Marx. Kant was also the father of the dialectic that inspired. Hegel's use of another German philosopher, Immanuel Kant. And so as it turns out, what did Rousseau focus on? Well, Rousseau focused on social contract theory primarily, right? And he's kind of the father of leftism, at least in the 
uh, modern era. Well, where does that live? And he was dialectical, by the way. He wanted to figure out how to make savages made to live in cities. He wanted to combine the natives out in the wilderness and the urbane city folk who he thought were too constrained. Man is born free, but everywhere he's in chains. And the chains were the social constructs and the laws and the requirement for rationality and decorum and manners and etiquette that people are trapped under in city life. So he wanted to combine them, the freedom of the native or the savage, and then the uh, benefit of living in the city. He wanted to figure out how to mix those two together dialectically. And in fact, it was his formulation of that specific thing that led Hegel to adopt the concept of Aufheben, which he used to describe that that circumstance. In fact, he got that from an intermediary philosopher named Schiller. And so uh, here you have somebody operating in the societal realm, and then his philosophical, and, and that's kind of the birth of modern leftism, and then his philosophical inheritor operates in the ideal realm, and then his, which is Marx, operates in the material realm. So you see that societal to ideal to material, which means the next move would be where? Out of the material back into the societal, and what comes next? What's the next era of Marxism? Well, I already told you of this dialectical leftist analysis. Well, I already told you, right? Cultural Marxism, and then critical Marxism, which studies the very terms of the existing society and its cultural com- components and the way that culture is commodified, etc. In other words, it goes back to the societal analysis. The total of the society is under analysis in critical Marxism. And then what comes next? Woke. Woke Marxism has an identity phase, but identity is kind of ideally conceived. And then people start talking about kind of a Marxist theory of how knowledge works and knowing. Who gets to be counted as a knower? We have to have our lived experience count as knowledges. We have to consider other ways of knowing. This is back in the ideal realm, right? There's kind of these perfect identities out there, like your gender soul, like who you were meant to be before you were assigned to sex at birth. This is idealism. This is idealistic. But because there's been this Alfhaben, this this sublation, this combination, and it's gone around the circle already. There's aspects of materialism. You're going to change your body in order to affect the the material realm. You're going to force a society to endorse you because you're trying to affect the ideal realm. But ultimately, you're still working in idealism. You're just going to have elements of materialism in society that are incorporated because of the dialectical movement so far. So if it's now, if woke, woke is dying, folks. If it's now in the ideal realm, what's next? The material realm. And what would the material realm be? Well, now we come back to where we started. This is your answer to the question of what do you get when you synthesize, dialectically synthesize, capitalism and socialism as though they are opposing systems. So you try to see them from a bigger, broader perspective, something that contains both of them but without losing their essences. And what do you get? Well, what you get is called sustainable capitalism, sustainability, the sustainability movement of the United Nations, the World Economic Forum, etc. And what does it look like in practice? It looks like China. What is China? Well, it's a communist country that's actually in practice socialist because real communism will never be tried. And so it's a socialist nation that's running a market at the pleasure of the party. The CCP controls the market with a command economy, but it's still a market. If you don't upset the CCP, you have an actual market, and it participates on the global market, etc. So you now have a market, you have kind of a quasi-market economy that solves the fundamental problem of communism. It produces. 
the Chinese produce like crazy. So they have the problem of production and the problem of distribution not as well solved, but the problem of production is certainly solved because they have a market operating. And so the goal then is what you have to do is figure out, well, capitalism produces the goods, socialism makes it sustainable. So what you have to do is mix them. And what is it exactly that the World Economic Forum and the United Nations and the Democratic Party and the left parties all over the West are trying to bring upon us? Well, it looks like we're going to have these ESG scores that serve the sustainable development goals of the United Nations, and we're going to have a new sustainable and inclusive capitalism that redistributes according to social justice rules and some economics and uh, highly progressive structures where poverty is alleviated, and um, we're going to make sure there's not too much environmental impact, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And we're going to have all these governance rules. That's your ESG where we're going to install people in power. So the next turn of the dialectical wheel. So we're talking Rousseau's French Revolution inspiring society, uh, social theory into Hegel's uh, speculative idealism or his dialectical idealism going into Marx's dialectical materialism, going into the critical and cultural analyses of the mid-20th century culture and critical Marxism, into this woke Marxism that's gone back into this higher level lifted up idealist phase that's trying to combine some idealism, some materialism, uh, and in fact some social criticism. And then now we're spinning the wheel at this higher level that's going to pay attention to social issues. That's the S and ESG is social, social justice. But it's also going to be materially driven through the investment finance sector and the large corporations. So you're going to create a corporate command economy. In other words, a contained and controlled market that's going to be subject to the stakeholders that control it, the council, we could say, of stakeholders, the Soviet of stakeholders, that's the Russian for council, the Soviet. And they're going to say how capitalism is going to work to make sure that it stays sustainable, right? And so sustainable capitalism becomes the dialectical synthesis of socialism and capitalism. And it's also the next turn of the dialectical wheel. And so what turn is after that? Well, it has to go back to cultural or societal, right? And so what's it going to be? Well, what spurred me to get off my butt, I've been meaning to record this for a while, but somebody sent me a uh, link to the United Nations Academic Impact Report on Global Citizenship. Oh, there it is. Global citizenship. You see, people who believe in nations, nations that are sovereign over their own populations, those people are at odds with a global citizenship concept. So what you're going to do is create the concept of a global citizen within the individuals who exist in their nations, and you're going to then poison the idea, make them think that all the problems in the world come from the fact that these, there are these nations that creates inequality, that creates strife, that creates division. It's not sustainable. And so it's better if they start thinking of themselves more and more and more in terms of global citizenship. Of course, there is no global citizenship. Why? Because there's no global sovereign. Citizenship is the relation of a subject to his sovereign. That's literally what it means. There is no global sovereign. But if you get a bunch of people thinking of themselves as global citizens and you say, well, global citizens need global management, then you can bring in a global government. And that's how they get their global government, through a consciousness-raising, cultural, societal, Marxist analysis that the very existence of nations is the problem. And a global citizenship consciousness is what's going to be necessary. And so what do they write? It's just two paragraphs here on this landing page. Global citizenship is the umbrella term for social, political, environmental, and economic actions of globally-minded individuals and communities on a worldwide scale. The term can refer to the belief that individuals... Maybe we're going to have more than one definition. 
The term can refer to the belief that individuals are members of multiple diverse local and non-local networks rather than single actors affecting isolated societies. See, there's that consciousness. There's that societal analysis. People who still believe in nations, not nationalism, nationism, the idea that there should be nations at all, are the people who have the backwards, outdated, you say, 18th, 19th century or before mentality, 20th century mentality that caused world wars. It's all this problem, blah, blah, blah. And we're going to have this huge conflict right now. And that huge conflict is going to be used to leverage and say, well, people thinking in terms of nations is the problem. Russia going up against Germany, blah, blah, blah. You know, the United States trying to make America great again. Well, they can't get on the same global page as everybody else because they're thinking in terms of their American identity instead of their global identity. The Canadians are doing so much better thinking of their global identity, right? And so it says promoting global citizenship in sustainable development will allow individuals to embrace their social responsibility. That's straight up Rousseau, by the way. There's your social contract theory that you'll give up some of your freedoms and rights in order that we end up having more of them somehow. Alfhaven, sublation from Rousseau, will allow individuals to embrace their social responsibility to act for the benefit of all societies, not just their own. See, your nation's going to be a problem. It doesn't matter which nation it is. It's not that you're a British nationalist or a French nationalist or an American nationalist, Canadian nationalist. The idea that nations should exist at all is going to go up against a global consciousness. The concept of global citizenship, they tell us, is embedded in the Sustainable Development Goals through SDG number four ensuring inclusive and quality education for all, and promote lifelong learning. Sounds like a weird place to have tucked it, except that's what they're going to use things like social-emotional learning to do. And higher education is to start teaching kids. They said this repeatedly when I appeared on Dr. Phil. The one education lady said it over and over and over again to where it stuck out like a sore thumb. And so a little over a year ago, I locked into this and thought, wow, global citizenship's on the horizon. That's why it's in SDG 4 about education, is because they're going to brainwash the kids into global citizenship consciousness, and that's how they're going to do the next phase after the sustainability phase kicks in. But you see, it's embedded within that, and it's growing out of woke dialectically, which includes global citizenship as one of its targets. Global citizenship is an educational target of Agenda 2030. By 2030, the international community has agreed, has agreed to ensure that all learners acquire the knowledge and skills needed to promote sustainable development, including global citizenship. See, you're going to have to be in their values, including the idea of a global citizen, and therefore being against national citizenship, which is the old, outdated right-wing model that has to be presented against a new left-wing global model so it can be synthesized. Alfhaven. Universities have a responsibility to promote global citizenship by teaching their students that they are members of a large global community and can use their skills and education to contribute to that community. So, as I'm saying, if you understand the dialectic, you understand how the dialectic moves, you can understand what it's doing and where it's been and where it's going. Rousseau with sociality going into uh, Hegel with idealism, going into Marx with materialism, going into the cultural and critical Marxists with a societal analysis, again, going back into woke with its weird idealism, gender idealism, identity idealism, 
transforming into the materialistic sustainability project of the same, the same SDGs, which are to set up the capacity to move back into a societal analysis if they don't get total power or just so they can continue moving the dialectic of global citizenship. Remember, the goal of communism is a one world government. So this is what I wanted to present. It's what kind of what the dialectic is, but how the dialectic moves and that it moves around in this spiral again and again and again, ideal to material to societal, ideal to material societal. And if you actually track that, you can actually see where we have come through leftism in the past 270 years and or 60 years and where we are going with leftism up to 2050. So for the next 30 years, and that's going to be sustainability, huge push happening now, going to accelerate until they grasp all they can grasp out of it. And then the next turn will be to say when it doesn't work, because it won't, that the existence of nations like the United States, for example, that resisted it, is the reason why we don't have a perfect, awesome thing. And so the idea of nations is going to come under attack, and they're going to subvert that by preparing your children and your grandchildren to believe that we are global citizens with global responsibilities managed through the United Nations, which I think at this point we should just call the Fourth International, meaning the Fourth International Communist Party. Um, and there it is. You can see it. And of course, it'll spin after that back into the ideal, and there'll be some other consciousness that's like woke, put on steroids, as I haven't thought it through that far. But anyway, you can predict how it's going to move, because that's how the dialectic moves, according to the magic spells that make up their whole religion, that you still think is just social theory. That you still think that it's not just a continuation of the exact same program, because each successive phase criticizes and cannibalizes the previous one and therefore it criticized it and so it's definitely not that except it definitely is so there you go big picture 